They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast of the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus. I'm Aaron and I'm your host. Uh, We're a month away from the Libertarian Party National Convention in Orlando, Florida. And I hope if you're a delegate or an alternate that you've made plans to be there July 8th through 12th. Um, We have a lot of reason to think that the alternates will be able to get seated either in their state delegation or in another state's delegation that's not quite full. And it's very important that we get all our people down there to vote for Joshua Smith for chair Uh, We need to break that cycle, break the cycle that the LP has been trapped in the last several years. Um, And if you have questions about the convention, you can email me at communications, communications with an S, at lpmesiscaucus.com. Or you can message the LPMC Facebook page and either I or someone else will get back to you. You can also join the LPMC private Facebook group that I always tell you about. There's more than 5,000 of us in there. Tons of great posts every day. And finally, you need to subscribe to our email newsletter where we put out the most important information. Uh, We don't uh, uh, spam you with a bunch of stuff every day. Uh, It's usually once a week and uh, uh, an important breaking news thing. So occasionally twice a week, uh, you can sign up for that at takehumanaction.com. Now, on to today's program. My guest is the prolific Kyle Anzalone, who is the assistant editor at antiwar.com. He's the news editor at the Libertarian Institute over there with Scott Horton and Sheldon Richmond and Pete Quinones. Uh, Kyle writes a news roundup piece every day uh, for the Libertarian Institute. You can just go to the banner at the top of the page over there and click on his name. Uh, Kyle is also the host of the Foreign Policy Focus podcast, which recently passed the 500 episode mark. So I thought it'd be nice to come on and uh, uh, have him come on and talk about that. And to get a survey in what's happening uh, all around the world, since everyone here has been uh, so focused on domestic issues lately, I think you'll enjoy my conversation with Kyle Anzalone. All right, Kyle Anzalone, welcome to Decentralized Revolution. Hey, Aaron, happy to be on. Hey, it's uh, been a pleasure. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to have you on. I've been meaning to have you on for a long time. You actually answered a couple of questions for me back when I was uh, uh, putting out the idea of doing this podcast, and I appreciate that. And uh, what prompted me and made me remember was I just heard your 500th episode of Foreign Policy Focus, which is your podcast. Tell us a little bit about your podcast and about that episode in particular. 
Uh, yeah, th- so I-, I host the Foreign Policy Focus podcast. It's been three years and I think like three months now. Uh, it took me that long to put out the 500 episodes. Uh, I do a show every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And as the uh, unfortunately boring uh, name of the show suggests, I mostly talk about U.S. foreign policy. Although, I, you know, I do get into other subjects, particularly, uh, you know, police just brutality has always been something that I've been very like passionate about. And I mean, how anybody who, you know, goes to the free thought project, I only let myself go to the website like every other day or like, I'm, you know, seriously, like it, it drains you yeah. to just see that level of brutality happen in your own streets. And you know, you know, I do observe this happen in the middle East as well, but it's a different level when the, the people are speaking your language and you could like hear their cries and pleas as cries and pleas and not just Arabic words. And so, um, you know, that that's most of what I do on the 500th episode. I had on uh, Scott Horton, who, uh, you know, is the boss over at the Libertarian Institute, which has pretty much like made it possible for me to do everything. Uh, Scott picked up my show and my news roundup. And now that's where, you know, they're solely published. Uh, so, you know, be sure to check out both there. Um, and I, I also work with him over at antiwar.com. And so, you know, it's, it, it, my, my relationship with Scott has been great. And so it was great to like have him on to, on the 500th episode. And I wanted to do something that was a little bit more evergreen because it's, a, you know, maybe that's one of the episodes people like go back to and check out because it was such a big round number. And I have him on to talk about Scott, uh, Star Wars and uh, Scott loves Star Wars. And uh, for anybody who's ever listened to an episode of the, the Scott Horton show, they know that Scott's very passionate about everything he talks about. And so uh, you just get here and passionately rant about Star Wars and how we really could have learned a lesson from watching those movies, especially right after 9-11, about the stupidity of Empire and Endless War and how it ultimately brought down the Jedi. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if it's too much to read into to the events of late in the Trump presidency as this being, you know, kind of proof that we're in an empire in decline. But, uh, y- you know certainly a lot of the things that we're now seeing here at home, the, you know, the, the police brutality, uh, how much the police have beat American citizens knowing that they're being recorded over the past couple of weeks has been shocking. And and so I do think we're seeing a lot of the empire coming home now and, uh, potentially, you know, really, I, I guess as a libertarian, it doesn't feel like we're really in a republic anymore anyways. Uh, the idea that the Constitution in any meaningful way binds the federal government it is almost all but just, you know, something that they teach you in 11th grade now. It's not it's not the reality of the situation. But there, there are some constraints on what the president could do. And at the very least, if, you know, he does try to assassinate Soleimani, there is uh, enough of a pushback in Congress uh, that they'll at least pass a resolution condemning it. And so uh, there are some like vestiges of that less. But I think, you know, what, they threw away the entire Bill of Rights for the quarantine. And now I guess whatever was left of it has been absolutely trampled on by the police and riot gear over the past couple of weeks. So, yeah, yeah it, it's been amazing to watch. And you're right. Um, them knowing that uh, eyes, the eyes of everyone and the cell phones of everyone are on heightened uh, alert and they still act this way is pretty amazing. Um, do you, you, you mentioned that empire coming home. Uh, what explain that concept a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so 
over the past, especially what 20 years now since 9 11, and not quite 20, but uh, we, we've been, you know, waging this global war on terror. And, you know, the slogan for the global war on terror was fight them over there so we don't have to fight them over here, except I guess Americans forget they're on the globe. And so the, the global war on terror includes the United States. And I think at first, you know, this mainly just included the, you know, FBI rounding up some Muslims here and there and, uh, you know, running some sting operations in mosques. Absolutely horrible, but at the same time, they didn't affect the rest of us. Uh, but over the, you know, the, the course of this, uh, you know, war on terror, we've sent, uh, you know, millions of Americans now to go occupy either Iraq, Afghanistan, or, uh, you know, and on the smaller scale in Syria and Somalia, where they've actually tried to become, you know, the police force there by carrying around M5, uh, M16s and driving around Humvees with 50 cows mounted on the top. So, you know, some of those guys have come back to the United States and become police. And you could imagine that, you know, their attitude about policing is going to transfer from, you know, what they're doing overseas to here. Likewise, uh, you know, the same thing happens with their military equipment. Uh, there's something called the 1033 program at the Pentagon. And essentially what this does is just gives weapons of war to every single law enforcement uh, agency in the United States. I guess including at one point, like the L.A. Police Department had some grenade launchers. They ended up giving the not please, the, the school district. <laughs> actually had an armed force that had some grenade launchers and they had to give those up uh oh be, what people found out because they're like you're a school district but i'm yeah. sure they you know are just going to give it to the cops who are in the schools anyways so it's you know it's pretty meaningless for the school district to get the bat but just to understand the level of absurdity that we've armed you know police and then the other thing uh that i think has really contributed to it and there's a great article today at the gray zone by Matt blumenthal um, I, I'll send you the link to it and maybe you put it in the show notes. I don't know. Uh, but what he goes through is how the American police have been, uh, as he calls it, uh, Israelized. And essentially, uh, they've gone over there and trained in such great numbers, and especially high ranking officers, you know, the kind of people that come back and like teach the rest of the police how to police. And, and so they've been training with, you know, the uh, Israeli uh, shim belt or defense forces over there and just. Go look at you know what they do to the Palestinians and understand that we do not want American cops acting anything like this. Uh, there's a story from the past couple of weeks where there was a, a young autistic Palestinian man walking to his uh, you know day program, and I guess the police told him to stop and being afraid of police. You know, autistic people have a lot of trouble with this kind of stuff. Uh, decided to run, so first they shot him in the leg, and then one of his teachers or whoever you know worked at the the program he went to came out and was yelling in arabic and in hebrew to the police like he's disabled please don't do this like he's just scared and they stood there for about five minutes and then they just wasted him fired three bullets into him and so whenever you look at the video george floyd and you say how could you kneel on the neck for you know nine minutes this is the kind of thing that our police have been training is just absolute brutality especially towards, you know, people who are so easily identified as other. Yeah. And it's, uh, it all is under the rubric of, you know, you, you, you see it in cop movies or, or you'll actually hear cops uh, talk about it on social media that, Hey, you got to go home at the end of your shift. So like, no matter what you have the right to go home safe to your family. So therefore 
whatever you do to other people who you think might threaten your safety is okay. And I, I just don't know, you know, I'm, I'm 44 years old and I remember, you know, I, I remember the, I think you're right. The, the nine 11 has been a real demarcation point in a lot of these things accelerating. I, I don't remember cops being quite as bad and as militaristic and as unrepentant back in the eighties and nineties um, than they are today. And I, I just, I'm, I'm not optimistic about where this is going because I think that the riots and the protests, unfortunately, I think are going to have a backlash and, you know, middle America is going to demand more law enforcement because what Mm -hmm. do you think about that? Yeah. Well, I I mean, just to look at how cartoonishly stormtrooper the, uh, you know, different riot police have looked across America in the past week. I don't know if they're wearing the face shield now as like a matter of protocol because people spit or throw things or if it's because of covid but you really can't see even the officers faces anymore a lot of times and i imagine like from the police officers perspective that's probably pretty dehumanizing like the protesters looking at them like to not be able to see their faces and so i'm not trying to have too much sympathy for the stormtroopers i'm just saying that it seems like the police the the state in general and the way they're you know designing the costumes for our police is making it harder and harder for there to be any kind of uh, you know, relation and sympathy between the police and the rest of the people who have far more in common than, you know, the people who control the state and, you know, the, the government and the elites of the country who don't have to deal with American cops. So they don't really care. Uh, I mean, I think at th- this point, anybody who's like not extremely wealthy and, um, I wouldn't say extremely wealthy, but I, I grew up, I'm, I'm 30 and I've had like experiences with cops that were like uncomfortable. I I'm saying this like as a white person where like cops breaking up a uh, drinking party in college, pointing guns at people, you know, that kind of thing should never happen to anyone. And it's happening to like middle-class white kids. So, you know, there's a lot of d- d- disturbing stuff like that. Um, sorry, I forgot kind of where I was going with this. Um, no, that- That's okay. I'll jump in and ask this question. Uh, A few months ago, uh, I would have said that foreign policy might actually get a good airing in this uh, presidential campaign season. You know, you had Tulsi Gabbard kind of making some waves and, you know, Trump's unorthodox foreign policy uh, style. And I thought we would be able to get some good debate on American empire uh, during this presidential election. Uh, is that just where do you see that going now? Do you think it's foreign policy is going to be talked about at all? And and then from that transition into it, would Trump or Biden be any better or worse than the other one? Yeah. So um, as far as Trump or Biden first, I, I think it's so hard to tell. They're both going to be bad and they're going to be bad in different ways. And then a lot of it is just how the politics work out. I mean, had Russiagate not happened, Trump probably wouldn't, would have been a little bit better on Russia if, you know, John Brennan and the rest of the American left weren't constantly screaming that he's uh, allied with Putin. So that. I, I don't know. I Neither of them have good instincts. They're both going to surround themselves with, you know, establishment advisors as hots. I, 
I guess I will say, I think leading up to the election here, Trump is probably going to try to do something with Afghanistan or have some kind of foreign policy win. And so that could mean that he actually pulls almost all U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. I think he'll have a hell of an argue. Um, it, you know, with the 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 establishment as far as like actually fully giving up the Bagram Air Base and withdrawing every last U.S. troop from Afghanistan, although that is what they said they were willing to do in their you know so-called peace agreement with the Taliban. That's actually not like a peace agreement at all. It's just kind of a a truce between the U.S. and the Taliban of sorts. Um, so I, I do think there's like kind of cause to think that in the coming months we could see something good happen on foreign policy. I wouldn't let that fool anybody into thinking that Trump is serious about actually bringing U.S. troops home from the Middle East or more importantly, you know, making some kind of idea, deal with Iran, North Korea, Venezuela or China to really. Uh, Russia, too, to really reduce ch- tensions or nuclear weapons, arms control, figure out some way to really de-escalate in Libya, Syria, Yemen. I, I really don't see any of that kind of stuff happening. He'll continue the you know escalation in Somalia. If, if you pick Biden, maybe he will be more inclined to get a deal done with Iran because that was Obama's thing. And uh, it's a pretty marketable failure, Trump's, uh, you know, maximum uh, pressure strategy on Iran. I, I mean, it hasn't moved the Iranians at all, and now they're shipping oil to Venezuela, undermining the U.S.'s uh, maximum uh, pressure strategy in both places. So that seems to me like we're, there's no real reason to to think that Biden's going to be that much better, but maybe a little bit on Iran. But then, you know, he'll probably be worse on Russia. So where, where does that balance out, and, and how does that all work out? It's kind of hard to say. Um, but I'm not encouraged by either. Uh, it seems like the Libertarian Party candidate will be the the best one on the war issue. I hope she, you know, brings it up and talks about it. I'm not sure what kind of platform she'll get. I mean, I feel like right now, who knows even if they're going to hold the Republican and Democratic conventions, much less debates in the fall. And, and so it may, you know, just be that there's not an opportunity for her to ever get out there, which I, I think is disappointing. But of the three candidates, you know, She's uh, on all 50 uh, state ballots. She's certainly going to be the only one that will bring meaningful change to U.S. foreign policy and actually improve the situation. Yeah. And that's why you'll never see, I don't think, unless, you know, something really major is going to have to happen. The the libertarian movement would have to be so big for the for the two major candidates to consent to be on the same stage with a libertarian or even a green candidate because they don't, they want the the small window of what can be talked about to, to stay the same. And the minute you let somebody else up there, then they have to talk about stuff in ways that they've not been forced to talk about before. So I think it would be great. And I hope, uh, you know, the fact that Trump and Biden are so bad and just sort of cartoonishly old and all this, uh, that might, uh, cause more people to look at, uh, uh, the LP, um, Speaking of the LP, did you see the thing recently where the chairman, Nick Sarwark, invited uh, Mad Dog Mattis to become a part of the... Uh, yeah, so for the, for the people who uh, didn't watch that, I rolled my eyes and shook my head. Um, it, it's absolutely absurd. You know, this is a guy who's 
doesn't want occupation of American streets, but waged occupation in Iraq and Afghanistan unrepentantly. He actually resigned as Secretary of Defense because Trump wanted to pull troops out of Syria. That could actually be the reason that the war in Syria, at least for the most part, and people are still dying in Syria, is because of Madison's resignation. Because had the U.S. left, then the Assad regime could repurpose pretty much all of its assets sets including probably making a deal with the syrian kurds and just get the rest of al-qaeda out of that country uh the so i think a big part of the reason why that war is still lingering around uh is because the u.s is refusing to leave and you know assad then has to deal with the syrian kurds in the u.s as well as al-qaeda instead of just being able to take out al-qaeda and that's all because of Mattis. I, I mean, you know, Jack Keenan, Lizzie Graham went in there and showed Trump maps and convinced him otherwise, but has had his secretary of defense saluted the president and just followed the orders. We we could be out of that war. So I have no idea why Nit Sarwat thinks it would be a good idea to, to bring Mattis into the party or that we have anything to agree on with Mattis other than you shouldn't occupy U.S. troops, uh, you know, which isn't even the bear it's not a conversation to, to even have you know it now had he wrote a letter or had he turned into smedley butler and wrote a whole book about how terrible these you know wars out how, how awful it is and people have done that you know there's uh colonel larry wilkerson uh colonel andrew basevich Ma major danny surgeon who have all come out and done those kind of things and if any of those people wanted to come into the libertarian party i would be the first libertarian to welcome them and you know to be like hell yeah now we got this guy on our side and now watch us make our points on war but that's not what who mad dog mattis is yeah i i think it it was one of those you know um nick i think is infected with the orange man bad thing so anytime you know you get anything to criticize trump on something petty he takes it and um you know and again that's a that should be a core principle uh, that's why I love what you're doing and what Scott does and, and antiwar.com, because if, if war isn't your number one issue as a libertarian, then, uh, I, I, I don't know if you've gone far enough down the, down the path to really understand what this is all about, because it's everything about government that's bad rolled into one and just magnified. So, right. Well, I mean, I get that, you know, taxes affect people a little bit more police brutality, the war on drugs. I mean, those are all really terrible things. And I'm glad there's great libertarians who focus on those issues. I'm not quite sure how much longer we have to deal with this Sarwak guy, but I'm just going to say, I've been following him on Twitter over the past couple of weeks. And it seems to me that all he's trying to do at this point is make people mad at each other. Yeah. The first thing he does after, you know, the whole uh, George Floyd thing happens is he's tweeting out black lives matter and everything. And libertarians didn't, you know, get appalled at it. And so then he started attacking Eric July for being a, a Nazi. It's absolutely just absurd. And I, the only reason he would do stuff like that and invite Madison to the party is I legitimately think he's like maybe mad about how it went down and how he's been kind of marginalized. I mean, I, I do feel bad for the guy, right? That all by convention. I will say that that took a hell of a lot of patience. And it did seem like, you know, he he did a decent job writing a meeting and that's not an easy task. But now you can't destroy the whole party on the way out, dude. 
I guess we could all just ignore him. And that is kind of the libertarian solution to the whole thing. And uh, we'll get rid of him in what, a couple months here. I don't follow the party close enough, but it's uh, yeah. The convention in Orlando is uh, uh, July 8th through 12th and he's not running for reelection. So unless something strange happens, but you know, people can jump in at the last minute, but I, I don't think he's going to, and hopefully, um yeah we can move on from him i i just thought that uh someone who knows uh i just wanted to hear your comment knowing what you know about mattis um let's uh before we move on i kind of wanted to go down kind of the list of hot spots that we haven't been hearing about the last three or four months um and kind of get a, a quick update on all of those uh you mentioned uh uh, you, that you do cover some police abuse stuff uh, on your show. Who are some of the good reporters and sources and voices? Uh, Cause I see a lot of people on social media right now in like the Tom Woods group and in our, our group saying, Hey, where, what are some good sources on, on these police brutality uh, statistics and trends and things like that? So where would you recommend people look? Yeah. So first off, Free Thought Project um, is a great website. I think they constantly have like their Facebook pages and stuff like taken down. So make sure you like bookmark it or something, because when you get kicked off of social media, it's very easy to kind of get kicked out of like the stream of news. So many people find it through Facebook or Twitter and stuff like that. So Free Thought Project. Um and then check out always libertarianinstitute.org. Scott Horton there is on the blog. You'll constantly constantly see ones like Cop Kills Man or Cop Does This. And it's just Scott finding the, the some of the worst things the cops do and uh, posting that up. There's, you know, different websites like Cop Block and stuff like that. I do try to, you know, check that stuff out occasionally, but... I think that's the best of it. But now with, with social media and everybody's phone having like the camera that I have on my new phone is crazy good. You know, I'm, I, you know, everybody could now record these cops beating people in high def. And so there's no blurry camera. There's four people out there with different angles. And so there's no disputing what happened in some of these cases. And, uh, I, you know, I think that's a big part of it too, is just getting it through social media. But uh, the, the news roundups I put out, I usually have like a, a story or two in there a day uh, about just some ab absurd things going on in the cr criminal justice system. It's not always the cops. You know, sometimes it's the judge that sentenced somebody to 30 years for a drug violation, a first time drug violation. Uh, but most of the time it's the you know law enforcement arm out there swinging their batons or shooting their guns. Yeah. Um, okay, let's go down the list of uh, places that uh, I'm, I'm curious about, but um, I haven't been following foreign policy news lately, just kind of like everybody else. I've been, I, I go through phases where I, I, um, I listen to you a lot and listen to all Scott's stuff, and then I kind of drop off a little bit and then I come back. So um, let's, you, you mentioned Syria. Is there anything else there going on? How many Americans are still there? And uh, um, what's do we do we even know? Yeah, so I think there, the Trump administration uh, has not been putting out official troop numbers for Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan. So it's a little bit of a question mark. It's a, I think around 500, but it's definitely a couple hundred. Uh, I've seen people say lower towards 300 and higher towards 800. And I'm sure it depends on any given week, what kind of cargo they're moving in and out of the country. Uh, the U S is occupying a kind of a portion of Syria that is 
east of the Euphrates River in the country. So if you look at a map, you see the Euphrates River. You look east, that's mostly American-controlled, except for the very north, which is now uh, Turkish-controlled. Um, and then the U.S. is allied with various, uh, mostly Tur- uh, Kurdish groups, but sometimes Arab groups in that region. East of the Euphrates River is almost all controlled by Assad, although Israel regularly carries out airstrikes against Assad's army, uh, Hezbollah, which is fighting alongside Assad in Syria, or different Iranian forces, our alleged Iranian forces, uh, that Israel says is fighting along with uh, Assad in Syria. These airstrikes often happen in residential areas and will kill, you know, different Shia militants of different nationalities, but will also kill civilians too. Uh, And then there is the Idlib province of Syria, which is kind of like the north central, maybe north uh, western part of the country. And that is controlled by Al-Qaeda-linked militants and backed by Turkey. Uh, Essentially, Turkey represents the militants and has uh, negotiated with Russia on their behalf for different ceasefires. It looked like there was a ceasefire that I was holding for about three months, I guess in part motivated by, you know, COVID and stuff like that. Uh, but it now seems that that is off and there were 40 uh, fighters killed, mostly Al-Qaeda fighters killed uh, this week, uh, either Syrian bombing or shooting uh, of different people. So Assad is pretty safe in in where he's at now, right? Like he's in no danger of losing this thing. Right. Once Russia got involved uh, around 2015, it's been pretty clear that Assad's going to win that civil war. Uh, there were parts of times where there was so much, uh, you know, Islamic State members and, you know, Al-Qaeda fighters in that country where it very easily could have happened that one of those two groups overran Damascus and claimed control of Syria. But once Iran really helped to to make, you know, stagnate the war, and then once Russia got involved, they've been taking it back. Now, the U.S. has armed and fund, uh, you know, the the opposition to Assad, which, as I've said, is mostly Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Uh, in, in the U.S. has also bombed ISIS mostly in Syria, uh, some al-Qaeda targets too. Uh, so has fought that war in, in kind of a way on behalf of Assad, our, our ultimate enemy. At the same time, we continue to allow the Kurdish population of Syria to kind of maintain autonomous under America protection and air cover, unless it's Turkish incursions into Syria. So I know this is really complicated, everybody, but the... When Turkey, you know, comes and takes Syrian Kurdish land, we don't say anything. We allow that to happen. Why is that? Why is that stance? We're so kind of deferential to Turkey and a lot of these things. It seems well, like. Turkey's a NATO ally okay. and has uh, a key air base that I think the That's U.S. Good. uses more frequently now called the Insert Lake Air Base. There's a bunch of nuclear warheads there. I don't think they're actually actively on any kind of like missiles or launch platforms, but they're there. Uh, so that's a big part of it. Uh, it's a large state for a long time. Turkey was kind of called like the Arab democracy or the democracy of the Middle East, I guess. Uh, but that's really not the case anymore. Uh, there was a alleged coup attempt in 2016 against uh, the, the president there, Recep Erdogan. And since he has just taken more and more power, uh, you know, under the the you know, position of presidency has now purged like 180 people from their uh, 180,000 
people from their jobs and arrested, I think, close to 130,000. And so, I I mean, this is, you know, a smaller state than the USSR, but it's, you know, gulag levels. and, And that doesn't even include, you know, this is just him trying to wrap up support of the Turkish population. There's a large Kurdish population in Turkey that's treated even worse. Yeah. Let's move east from uh, from Syria to Iraq. Uh, what's going on there? So things have been relatively quiet uh, in the past couple of months. Uh, you know, for a while, there was a lot of cases of the U.S. or Israel bombing Shia militant groups in Iraq. And these are the guys that fought against the Islamic State and helped to, you know, eliminate the Islamic State in Iraq. Uh, and then when that happens, there's frequently in the coming days or weeks going to be rocket attacks against either a U.S. military base, the U.S. embassy, or the ba- the airport in Baghdad indiscriminately fired into the green zone, but in some way to show displeasure with the American occupation of Iraq. Uh, a very prominent Shia cleric uh, Motada Sadr just said that it's time for the American occupiers to leave. And this is a call that's also come out of the Iraqi government itself uh, after the assassination of Soleimani, uh, who was the Iranian Quds Force general, probably the second or third most uh, popular figure in Iran at the time. I mean, his his funeral drew millions and millions of attendees. And I'm sure that there's people in Iran who show up to these things so they could be seen there, uh, you know, to appease the government. But at the same time, very popular and important person in the Middle East, in large part because, you know, he helped to rally forces against the ISIS menace. And so the situation in Iraq right now is not very friendly towards the United States, yet it seems that, you know, we're going to keep our troops there. And the I guess the hope is that we're not bombing the Shia mil- militants, Israel isn't, and then they're not firing rockets ass, because if they kill an American, then I think Trump's going to respond and escalate tensions once again with Iran. Are How many American troops are there? I, I know that you said that we don't know exactly. And are they are they basically sticking to the bases right now and not patrolling or what's what's their yeah, it's I think about a few thousand and they've actually consolidated down to uh, a fewer bases. Uh, they were deployed to like more northern bases and smaller bases. And so now I think they're mostly in uh, Kirkuk or the like Iraqi Kurdistan area or like more down south towards Baghdad. And again, they're all in these all, you know, larger bases. I guess part of that is these are the bases that have the, uh, you know, bunkers and capabilities in case Iran were to launch another missile attack. Yeah. All right. Let's go down to Yemen. It's terrible. Yeah, It's still exactly yep. what it's been the last couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, apparently the, the, like, medical system there has completely fallen apart under covid uh they were already dealing with a cholera outbreak and a diphtheria outbreak that were pretty serious uh i think dengue fever as well was was a problem but now the the covid i guess has just completely collapsed it um they're saying that the there's families now that are basically having to like marry off daughters very very young because they can no longer care for all their children it um if you go on twitter and look around i mean that you see the videos of these kids and you know that they're like 
five or six years old, maybe you could tell they're they're not gonna they're not gonna make it. You know, these are kids that even if you delivered a crate of food to their house tomorrow, like that's that's not what they need. They need serious medical care because they've been so malnourished. And then you know when you really think of like the implications over the long run of you know you have an entire generation of you many children now who have suffered under a five year mainly air war, right? So the PTSD that will come from that is going to be unbelievable. The Saudi air campaign has been relatively indiscriminate. It's at schools. They blew up a, an entire school bus full of children, 44 children. Uh, they attacked a, a funeral in the middle of the capital city, killing 150. They've blown up entire wedding parties, entire families full of children. I, I mean, I was reading this one article where there was a house that wasn't even a house. It was just a bunch of cinder blots on four sides. And they tried to bomb that. They missed and the family lived, but they almost bombed it. It's a hole in the ground, essentially. And so the, the situation there is awful. I mean, you know, we we know that, like, mothers shouldn't be stressed out when they're pregnant. And that has, like, serious consequences, like, on, you know, a child's upbringing or a baby being terrified or seriously malnourished has serious consequences on what that kid's potential in life is. And, you know, I, I don't say this to be like, oh, there's going to be a whole generation of stupid Yemenis, but this hurts IQ statistically, like you just see it across the board. So if you starve an entire, entire you know, generation, they're, they're going to have lower IQs and then you're going to look probably more crime, more domestic violence. And certainly there, there's probably going to be some blowback coming, you know, against the United States one of these days in some form just from uh, you know, the, the hatred that must be festering in that country against, you know, the United States, not because of anything that me, you, or probably 90% of the population even knows about, but because of this war that we're allowing Saudi Arabia to wage against us. You know, the, the problem is, is that when the bombs hit Yemen, the people look at the bomb fragments and they say, made in the U.S. of A. So guess who they think is bombing them? Guess who they think is responsible? And they're right. We we are ultimately responsible for just de destroying and wrecking a society in a way that's very hard to just even comprehend, yeah. you know, what it's going to mean. What? Why is Saudi Arabia so committed to this? And then why haven't they, do they even have an army big enough, like, to go in and occupy this what's what's their end game what do they want to happen uh through all this yeah so it's kind of hard to even say at this point just to have like a little context when this first started uh the young now crown prince but then deputy crown prince and defense minister mohammed ben solomon mm -hmm. called it decisive storm so he thought we were going to go in kick the ass of these backwards ass Yemeni Houthis right the hell out of the capital city, reappoint who they thought was the rightful leader of Yemen, Mansour Hadi, who only had a claim to the throne because Hillary Clinton organized a one man election for him. He had never had a political opponent and he had one election, what, not eight or nine years ago now in Saudi Arabia, still trying to reinstall him as president. Uh, so I guess, that's what they say their goal is. Obviously, that's never going to happen. Uh, Saudi Arabia, you're right, doesn't have a ground army to go in there. Uh, Saudi Arabia has, I guess, tried with special forces a few times, and they get their asses handed to them every time. Yeah. I think they have a, or at least 
towards the start of this war, they were actually Pakistani military on the border. But the Houthis have actually crossed over a couple times and taken little chunks of territory in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia's really only war they're waging here is an air war and a blockade. So they keep food from coming in and then they bomb the food that's there they bomb cereal factories flots of sheep martha mundi who's an expert on the issue has called it a food war that they're intentionally targeting food they've bombed the the, you know the water treatment facilities uh the sewage facilities and so when it floods in yemen all there there's you know it doesn't carry the sewage out of the city it comes up and pollutes the drinking water and so then everybody gets cholera and saudi arabia doesn't even allow like chlorine to come into the the country uh to sanitize water in bulk like you would need and so it, it's it's horrific and and like i it's hard to imagine that there really doesn't seem to be a goal i guess the other selling point is that they say the houthis are backed by iran which really wasn't true at all at the start of this war but you know the the houthis have taken some help from iran since they've been bombed for five years by the saudis uh but at the same time i I believe you know even obama admitted that they don't take orders from the iranians uh and brian hook more recently admitted that that that's not the case that they're their you know kind of own group fighting their own mission and it's just so happened that they've been created as uh opposition force and so iran has exploited them by giving them weapons and helping them you know kind of hurt saudi arabia even more and in addition to giving them weapons and presumably money uh for this the the u.s has given saudi arabia some pretty up close and personal help right i, I think i heard scott talking about basically american flyers being co-pilots and things like this on missions to bomb Uh, these food sources and stuff. Is that true? And is that still going on? So it's hard to say what's still going on versus what was happening at the start of the war. Scott had those reports at the start of the war. um, And from, you know, people who are experts, they say that the Saudi pilots were really bad at the start of this war. And so it wouldn't surprise me if it was the case that Americans were the co-pilots in these planes. At some point in the war, it, it could be the case that they still are. Uh, they certainly perform the maintenance on the planes that's needed. The, the Saudis don't do maintenance on their own planes. They don't fit them. And these, you know, planes that are you know flying out in the desert and are F-15s and 60s, they need constant maintenance. Uh, there's also a lot of, you know, UK planes too, tornadoes and stuff like that. Um, and the UK is also essential in waging this war. At the start of it, we were providing mid-air refueling for the Saudis. So, you know, they could continue to bomb Yemen for hours at a time rather than just having to go back and forth. But we have since sufficiently trained the Emiratis to carry out these missions. So I guess it's not the Americans themselves doing it. While we continue to say that we have to provide support to Saudi Arabia to help them with targeting so they don't, you know, blow up schools and hospitals throughout the war, they continue to blow up schools and hospitals, even in the past couple of months, they've done it. Yet we still provide uh, the the. Uh, intelligence and logistical support. I believe they've even like picked and hit targets off of lists that the Americans told them not to. And, and yet uh, we, we still provide all that support and sold them bombs. They would, they wouldn't have bombs to bomb Yemen with if We didn't keep selling them to them. Yep. So that's, I think a good rundown of the U S support. Okay. Um, yesterday you mentioned to me that there's some uh, bigger news coming out of Libya right now. Yeah. So this is uh, one of those wars that 
people really never realized happened, but it's had serious, serious consequences, uh, including like a lot of the migration issue came from this. But in 2011, Obama and Hillary Clinton decided it would be a good idea to go and kill Muammar Gaddafi and uh, back a bunch of Al Qaeda jihadists to do it. And that's what happened. Once he was dead, as predicted, the country completely uh, was a failed state. You know, there were different militant groups all over the South. Uh, there was reporting like from 2018, I think I read, where this lady went and like kind of towards southern Libya. And she was like, well, you know, a couple of years ago was really bad because there's different militant groups in all these different cities and every single building I saw was shot up. But I guess they had all developed truces um, over time. And But the country fractured into tons of different little governments and pieces. It's now been consolidated into really two main governments. There's the Libyan National Army, which the main figure there is General Khalifa Haftar, who was formerly a CIA-backed puppet who tried to kill Gaddafi way back when. Uh, when it failed, he lived right outside the CIA for years and years and years. And so when Gaddafi finally died, he came back. This side of the conflict is now backed, I guess, most mainly by Russia, the UAE, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and France. The other government opposing them is the government of National Accord. This is the government that gets like the official UN bat title. Uh, it's the government that's more is lied, uh, lied with like the jihadists and Salafi groups that helped to overthrow the uh, government in the first place. They do control the capital city, Tripoli, and another key city, Marista. And, and that second city, Marista, is where the, a good number of the militants come that have helped that side. Their main backer is Turkey in Italy. Turkey has uh, repurposed Syrian like jihadists and al-Qaeda fighters from the Idlib province and sent them over to Libya. Uh, apparently, they're paying more to go fight in Libya than in Syria, and so they've you know, gotten a bunch of mercenaries and jihadists to go over there for that reason. And they've also provided uh, them with different kinds of drones and Humvees, uh, Likewise, I think the UAE has provided Haftar with uh, Chinese-made drones and supports. And so it's kind of a crazy situation where there's no American drones. Well, there may be American drones flying somewhere in Libya, but at least in this conflict between the two government factions, and I, I believe none of them are American-made, uh, but they've been bombing each other. It's been ruthless on civilians, including people who are held in like immigrant detention centers. Uh, those things have been bombed and I mean, the humanitarian situation there is really, really rough as well with uh, torture and the, the kind of human trafficking trade as so many people from Africa look to, you know, cross from Libya into Italy. Now, that has stemmed, fortunately, in the past couple of years. I'm not sure how much of it is because, you know, Governments in Libya have consolidated power and now are able to keep the, the trafficking down to at least a little bit of a minimum or put a cap on it. Or, you know, there was just so much backed up flow because people could never make it into Europe from Libya before. And once they had the opportunity, they all went. But a lot of the people were just kidnapped and tortured. Uh, this one guy read his story. He was like kidnapped and tortured and then his family paid a ransom. But it happened to him like four different times before he finally made it back home. Yeah. And so, again, the situation in Libya, the, the humanitarian situation is absolutely horrific. Now, are the two faction, the two government, um, quasi governments or whatever, are they 
is there any chance that they would just split the country or are they both committed to trying to control everything? It, it seems at this point that it's committed to being a single state. It's kind of interesting that, you know, on one side, the Libyan National Army, which as far as I believe population controls the majority, but definitely a landmass of the country controls the majority, is kind of led by more of a military dictator figure. And on the other side, I think, the guy is a little bit more of like a, just a international bureaucrat. I think he has more sympathies towards the Islamist, uh, but at the same time, it is just more of a, a dictator thug. And so it doesn't seem like either of them really want to, to put the other one in charge of the country. Uh, and it seems like both are determined to control the whole country at some point. Before we go to Afghanistan, I wanted to get... Uh... I, we could spend a whole episode on on, on this, but uh, uh, just a I just want a, a shorter uh, lay of the land. Israel and the situation with Netanyahu or is he ever going to be not the prime minister? Or he what what's going on there and and how is Gaza and everything still as bad as it's been? Yeah, so. Israel had three elections in the past year, and the first two were unable to uh, have put together a parliament that were able to elect a prime minister. So, you know, the Israelis elect parliamentarians, members of the Knesset, and then they go and vote for the prime minister. And there's a lot of different parties. There's not just two. And so they form coalitions and stuff like that. And it took three different elections before Netanyahu was able to form a coalition. And honestly, it seems like the only reason he was actually able to was because of the COVID emergency. Oh. And so the deal reached for Netanyahu uh, to keep his you know, coalition and remain prime minister was that he would be prime minister for 18 months and then turn the prime ministership over to Benny Gantz uh, for 18 months. There is also the issue that Netanyahu is on trial right now for corruption. And so it seems like the deal is going to allow him to remain prime minister while he's on trial. And he's going to work to finagle some kind of way to make it so that, you know, the, 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 it gets dropped. The The charges against him get dropped. And, you know, we've seen him try to introduce motions to have the Knesset give him immunity from this and it failed. Uh, but people are guessing with 18 months in power that he'll be able to work something out. The other big issue, and I think the far more volatile and important one, is that Israel is planning to go ahead and annex at least 30% of the West Bank, uh, most of the Israeli settlements and desirable land, uh, as soon as July 1st. And then, you know, people have talked about the the potential for this essentially starting the third intifada, uh, you know, the third Palestinian uprising against the Israelis, as this is going to really make it impossible for the Palestinians to ever have their own state. They're, they're really going to carve the West Bank up and it's going to look like Swiss cheese where Palestinians will have little pockets and villages, but the majority of it will be Israel or Israel only. And they'll have to like connect their little villages with tunnels and stuff to, you know, get from one place to the other. Yeah. Uh, it's a fascinating topic. I've read, I've been reading a lot about it the last couple of years and uh, it, it gets pretty depressing um, uh, pretty quickly. And I think the, haven't the Likud, they still, don't they, kind of still claim they're for the two-state solution, but they're, as you said, they're doing all these things that are making that increasingly impossible. Yeah, I, 
I suppose so. I haven't seen. I guess I don't know who who would believe it if you're talking about it. And that's a huge part of the West Bank, how you could ever be for a two state solution. But the problem that Israel finds themselves in is that if there's not a two state solution, then the Palestinians are citizens of Israel. They're they're people that live within the Israeli borders. And, you know, the way the world is supposed to work now is that people live within your borders and your democracy, then they have the same democratic rights of anybody else, regardless of religion or ethnicity. And that's not something that Israel wants to have. They don't want to make all the Palestinians into citizens with voting rights and equal rights to all the Israelis. And I think they're putting themselves in a position where they're either going to have to do that or it's going to be an extremely nasty uh, ethnic cleansing campaign against the Palestinians. But they are saying that, you know, they're the monopoly on violence over all the territory that the Palestinians live in. And so... You know they they should have a, a you know a right and a say in the government there. Yeah, um, it's uh, uh, yeah. Well, well, we got to move on from that because I could I could ask lots of questions and um, I don't want to take a whole lot more of your time. Um, but I do. Uh, there's two or three more hot spots. Uh, Afghanistan. Uh, any chance we're you mentioned way back earlier a little bit that there was a you know we we got some good news a few months ago about a supposed uh, um, treaty or whatever with the Taliban, but it's more of a, more of a truce and hasn't moved much since then. So what's going on there? So I guess the good news is the Trump administration is actually ahead of schedule uh, that they signed within that, you know, what they called a peace agreement that isn't uh, to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Apparently the reason for this is Trump has been pushing for COVID, although there's speculation now he's doing it to try to get all the troops out by November to claim that, you know, he ended that war. So I, I, you know, I think there's hope there. The other good news is that last September, the the Afghanistan held an election in which there was rampant voter fraud. Tens, I I think hundreds of polling stations didn't even open. Uh, A lot of the ballots that were counted were alleged to have been fate, and the voter turnout was extremely small. But in that election, uh, it wasn't decided till six months later that the incumbent president, Ghani, was the winner. Uh, but his main challenger didn't like that and claimed himself president, too, and actually held on live TV uh, at the same time a presidential ceremony. So if you're watching TV in Afghanistan, split screen, two different presidents swearing themselves in at the same time. And so that was the situation for a couple of months, which was really complicating uh, trying to have negotiations between the Afghan government and the Taliban. It looks like uh, those two uh, guys, again, the incumbent uh, Afghan uh, Ghani and his main challenger, Abdullah Abdullah, have reached some kind of agreement where uh, Ghani is going to remain the figurehead president, but Abdullah will have a pretty large role in negotiating with the Taliban. So I think what the, you know, from my perspective, Trump is doing the right thing by just getting U.S. troops the hell out. I think the problem is, is that he called his agreement a peace deal. And no matter what, I don't think there's going to be peace in Afghanistan in 2021. I don't think it's going to matter if, you know, Trump is president, if Biden's president, if we withdraw all troops tomorrow, if we add 100,000 troops to the country. There's... 
fighting and you know changes of power that are going to you know people are going to jockey for power that's gonna there's gonna be fallout there's gonna be blood in the years to come the u.s doesn't have to be part of it i think once we leave we'll start to kind of have a, a bounce of power come out and you know some you know some way distribute power in that country and let the afghans figure it out for themselves because obviously you know we've tried for uh almost two decades now and we can't yeah um it's uh it's still the case that the taliban controls a lot of territory there right so oh yeah, yeah. uh they control, I believe now more than any time since 2001. And it's not the cities, but it's most of the rest of like the, you know, kind of outskirt area of the countries, especially in the posture held areas. Uh, I think by landmass, especially at night, the Taliban could probably control more of the country than the Afghan government. Yep. Um, speaking of Trump, one of the, the great things that I, I really lauded him for and was very happy to see, uh, was the, the South Korea stuff, um, and, uh, or North Korea stuff. I was just watching South Korean baseball, uh, since, uh, since baseball is uh, not over here, I've got South Korea on the mind cause I've been watching Taiwanese and South Korean, uh, 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 baseball, but, uh, uh, there was a lot of good news out of North Korea and then it kind of stalled. Um, and then we had this episode, uh, a couple months ago where we thought maybe, uh, Kim had, had died or something had happened to him um, is what's the Trump administration pursuing right now? And, and how, how do things look? Not great. Um, I believe this week, uh, Kim Jong-un announced that he was severing the communication line that was set up mm -hmm. between uh, North Korea and South Korea. Um, it doesn't look like the kind of peace push that was really made by the South Korean president Moon Jae-in is going to net anything. Um, I think the unfortunate thing is North Korea and Kim Jong-un are maybe starting to make the calculation that the Americans aren't serious about making any kind of realistic deal and not serious about lifting sanctions. And so, you know, they're more in a, uh, we got to go it alone mode. And, and I think that's kind of the direction we're moving in. That said, I, I mean, you know, Donald Trump could hop on Twitter right now and say, Kim Jong-un, you have an invitation to the white house. Let's make a deal. And Kim Jong-un could take him up on that. That's certainly possible, but the actual trend and how things have worked out under the Trump administration makes it look much more like nothing's going to get done. I don't think we're actually going back to like them trading threats over Twitter and fire and fury. I think it's going to be a little bit more like the Obama administration where as long as, you know, Trump remains in power where, hey, if the North Koreans are willing to, you know, give up all their newts and give up Kim Jong-un and, you know, capitulate to America's every whim, then yeah, we'll make a deal with them. But they have to give up everything first, and that's not going to happen. So we'll yeah. never make a deal. Okay. Um, uh, the last big uh, place I wanted to hit has been in the news a little bit recently, and it's uh, it's a it's a place that's uh, I have a personal interest in is Taiwan. Uh, my wife's parents were born in Taiwan, and her mother, uh, uh, her father's no longer living, but her mother and her mother's extended family and her dad's extended family are are all over there. And uh, I visited last year and came to really love it. And I, I, it's just a great, great place compared to uh, uh, China, for ex for uh, uh, example. And every it's always happened most of my life. 
that two or three times a year, there's a, a news story about China, you know, rattling sabers, uh, putting a, a, you know, flying missions a little too close to Taiwan or, you know, ships or something like that. Um, and, and then you add in the wrinkle of the recent, the COVID stuff where, you know, the COVID started in China, but Taiwan, which is really close, actually handled COVID, I think, better than any country in the world. They haven't had a new case there in like three or four weeks. And um, so uh, there's been some uh, stuff with the WHO in Taiwan. And uh, explain, but explain what the situation diplomatically is, the U.S. relations to, to Taiwan and China and then maybe get into, is this just the standard um, saber rattling or is it cause for concern? Uh, yeah. So I guess to start off with, you know, just mentioning Taiwan as a country might get this podcast censored in uh, mainland China. So oh, wow. <laughs> that's that's a part of like kind of what's going on here is China is really waging more of a diplomatic and uh, kind of censorship effort in order to undermine uh, Taiwanese sovereignty. As you point out, they do carry out show force operations, uh, different kind of war games and stuff and encroach on Taiwanese territory. Uh, you know, similar things happen with the U.S. We've been sailing war, uh, warships at a pretty high frequently through the Taiwan Strait throughout the Trump administration. And the U.S. has actually moved a lot closer to Taiwan diplomatically throughout the Trump administration. Uh, the U.S. has always maintained what they call a one China policy, uh, admitting that Hong Kong and Taiwan are part of China. But at the same time, the actual policy that we carry out is, you know, threatening China to sanction China if they're too oppressive in Hong Kong and selling weapons and uh, now under the Trump administration having high-level diplomatic visits with Ch Taiwanese officials. And so while, you know, we say one China, that's in effect not our policy. I, I guess as a libertarian and as a person, you know, good for the Taiwanese people. They live a much freer life than the people in the, the rest of mainland China. And that's a hell of a good thing. And I don't think, uh, you know, China should, you know, invade. I do see the U.S. weapons sales as somewhat pro problematic in that it's, you know, picking a bigger fight with China at a time when Ch Trump is doing all kinds of other hawkish things against China that he doesn't need to be doing, uh, you know, trying to assert. Philippine or Vietnamese uh, territorial claims in the South China Sea, uh, you know, sanctioning over Hong Kong or this absurd trade war that he's, you know, been trying to wage throughout his presidency. So, you know, it's somewhat of a complicated issue because I'm very sympathetic uh, with the Taiwanese people. And at the same time, you know, I don't recommend the U.S. doing anything, especially aggressive militarily, yeah. to enforce that freedom. You know, that that's a situation that, you know, people need to resolve. And, you know, on that side of the Pacific Ocean, we'll handle this side. Right. I, I feel exactly the same way, even though I have a, a you know, a, a great interest in the safety and independence of Taiwan, but that would just be a disaster uh, for the U S to get involved. But are, are we officially committed to defend Taiwan? I don't think it's official that we have like a treaty that will defend them, but didn't Reagan give them some assurances and then that's kind of been the, the policy since then or. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, we also told Estonia that, 
if somebody invades you, you're a part of NATO and we're going to defend you. I don't know if, you know, the U.S. is prepared to go to a nuclear war with Russia and risk losing American cities because Russia invaded Estonia. That it just seems unlikely to happen in practice to me. And so my guess is that it's the same kind of situation with Taiwan. That said, I think the issue is, is that the only kind of split between the U.S. and China isn't Taiwan. And so there's a whole bunch of other like kind of causes and places for friction and concern. And so I don't know if the U.S. would ever like have, go to any kind of hot war with China specifically and just over Taiwan. But it could always be the breaking point, especially, you know, if the trade between the two countries really cut, cuts off, which apparently could happen or at least be severely reduced as, you know, Trump's trade war has been bad for it already. But with they're trying to label Hong Kong, I guess, as no longer sufficiently independent. And the U.S. maintains two different trade policies towards China and Hong Kong. And so if Hong Kong is no longer sufficiently independent, then it will be subject to all the same tariffs and trade rules that the Trump has in place for Beijing. Uh, how do things look for Hong Kong right now? Um, the COVID thing kind of shut down a lot of the protests, I think. But uh, do they have uh, any hope uh, for the? What was the thing with Boris Johnson? Was that significant at all, or, or, or just give us the rundown on there? Yeah. So when the UK handed, uh, you are, I guess, released its control over Hong Kong, I believe in 1997, yeah. they set up something that was supposed to be a one country, two system kind of rule for the next 50 years where Hong Kong would maintain its capitalist system and its judicial system. And, you know, what, but at the same time would still be a part of China for, again, for 50 years. And then I guess it would just integrate completely. Um, 50 years obviously haven't expired. Uh, however, there's been like certain parts of the, that agreement that are like more detailed and nuanced that haven't been lived up to uh, on both sides. And, and so that creates some some tensions. Uh, the U.S. has pumped a lot of money in there through the National Endowment for Democracy. And so China, I think, is very concerned about uh, increasing like U.S. saw power and influence in Hong Kong and has responded by trying to like kind of crack down on the population. Um even less so than Taiwan, is this any kind of thing that could be defensible for the U.S.? And I really don't think we could do anything about it. In fact, it seems more like if the U.S. maybe focused all of our uh, diplomatic efforts with China on just maintaining a little bit of like Hong Kong independence, but mostly Taiwanese independence, then a little bit of success could happen. But because we're already waging a trade war against China and, you know, trying to force them into nuclear agreements with the U.S. and Russia, when China's nuclear stockpile with the U.S. is minuscule compared, you know, we have thousands of newts and they have like, I think, 300. Uh, and then, of course, Trump has held, you know, a, a big rally in India and has signed defense uh, agreements with India, not def uh, con like weapon sales with India. 
And so that's, you know, a big cause of contention with China as well. They have some disputes over the Himalaya regions and have even in the past couple of weeks actually had like not actual skirmishes, but had deployed massive amounts of troops to the region uh, to try to, you know, maintain their claims to what they have there. And so there's a lot of issues between the U.S. and China and focusing, I think, too broadly and too much, make it so that we're not going to be able to really have any progress uh, you know, maintaining any kind of independence for the people of Hong Kong or Taiwan. Yeah. Okay. Um, if you've got five or 10 more minutes, I'd like to ask a couple questions that I sh probably should have asked back at the beginning. Sure. Um, I, uh, uh, I'm always interested in hearing people's libertarian conversion stories. Uh, so what made you a libertarian and what specifically got you uh, so interested in the foreign policy aspect of liberty that you want to you know, commit uh, a lot of what you do to that. So, cause I, I really enjoy your work and it's impressive. You remind me of Scott Horton a lot, you know, just kind of being laser focused on the foreign policy stuff and having that encyclopedic knowledge. So why, why a libertarian and why foreign policy? Well, I, I mean, thanks for the comparison of Scott Horton. I don't know how deserved it is, but I really appreciate it. Uh, you know, I'm a Ron Paul guy. I was in college during uh, the 2020 cam or 2012 campaign. And so like I went to a bunch of like rallies at like, you know, big campuses. I was out there holding the Ron Paul banner up on a balcony like, you know, and so I it, it was Ron Paul like even before 2012, but really like Ron Paul in 2012. That was I was like, yeah, I'm I'm libertarian, and this is like the one of the most important things I could do with my time is to talk about the message of liberty and spread the, the word of libertarianism. Right out of college, I had a job where I was driving like hours and hours a day, and so you know, had listened to something in the meantime. Uh, I got tired of Glenn Beck pretty quick and. You know, there weren't many libertarian podcasts, but the Scott, uh, not Scott Horn show, the Tom Woods show started uh, as like kind of a bonus off of the Peter Schiff show. You know, I was a big fan of Peter Schiff and listening to his show every day. And then the Scott Horton show, or, uh, Tom Woods show started. So I listened to that. And once he had Scott Horton on, I was, you know, my mind was blown. Uh, when I was in high school, I was like on the debate team. And so, you know, we read like position papers uh, on like the war in, uh, war in Afghanistan, Iraq, and how the surge was working. And so I knew all the statist arguments for this. And then when I heard Scott able to debunk it in so much detail, and he had read all the same things that I had, but knew why they were all false, it was just eye-opening. Uh, because I knew all the lies. And so when they were all set up to debunk and match the reality of what was going on, it was just something that I felt like since I had such a grasp on it, I needed to share with people because our foreign policy is so horrific. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of just got stuck like this. I, you know, I mean, um, because if I wasn't doing a podcast and I wasn't putting out the news roundup, I think I would just, you know, be like one of those miserable Twitter libertarians who's constantly like, you're not good enough on war. How dare you, you stupid commie or something like that. Um, and, and, you know, I make it much more productive yeah. uh, use of my, my anger and hatred for the U.S. empire. Yeah, that you hit the nail right on the head that that's something that uh, I've had to try to do too, is, you know, you mentioned earlier that you only go to the free thought projects, you know, every other day, cause it makes you angry. And I, I went through the same thing with, uh, especially with the police abuse stuff, 
that I, I can't, I don't even watch it now because I know, I already know everything. I mean, I, I know what I'm going to see on mm -hmm. these videos and I don't want to see it again. Um, and so it's key that we turn that, you know, what we know in our heart is right and wrong that we, I, I really think it's imperative that we all do something productive and constructive and educational about that and not just, uh, not just complain, but complain and in detailed and organized ways. And uh, I appreciate that, that work that you do. I want to give you a little chance to plug uh, uh, anything else that you might be doing, but I wanted to ask how things are going at antiwar.com. I know Justin Raimondo passed a few months ago and um, but antiwar.com seems to still be going strong. How are things over there? Great. Um, so Justin actually passed away before I started there last July is I've almost been there a year now. Um, so Eric Garris pretty much runs the thing. Uh, Scott Horton is the editorial director and, you know, really works on, you know, the editorial side of the page, Jason Ditz does all the news stuff. And so if you go to antiwar.com, you know, the, the top of the page, you have like top news, top highlights and Scott Horton show. And then right under that, you have the news section, which is Jason did just writing up all the stuff going on in the U S wars. And he doesn't go on for like, you know, 10,000 words. They're, you know, short a couple hundred word pieces. So they're easy to read and they put the wars in context. So this is what's happening. You know, this is why it's happening. And this is why it's important to Americans. Those are his articles a few times a day. Now also Dave DeCamp is uh, doing a lot of that and writing some uh, original like articles as well. So uh, there's a lot of great stuff happening in antiwar.com. Uh, Danny Scherzen and Dub Bandow write articles every week. Uh, oh, yeah. Danny is a former uh, U.S. Army major. He, you know, isn't a libertarian, but let me tell you, he hates the wars more than anyone, understands them better than almost anyone, maybe other than Scott. Uh, I don't know, maybe I give him, Scott too much credit because Danny's actually been there and fought in the surges in both Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, but just has such a great take on the U.S. empire, our wars, and how they destroy not only here, uh, you know, us in the U.S., but also so many lives overseas. And uh, how long have you been news editor at the Libertarian Institute? Uh, I got the title, I think, January of this year, I've been posting the show and the news roundup. Actually, it just so happens that I realized today I posted my first news roundup four years ago today. Oh, wow. um, not at the Libertarian Institute. I think like six months after I started, Scott picked them up at the Institute. Uh, so I've, it's been about three years that I've been, uh, you know, just posting my work over there and trying to help out with stuff. Um, what, any other, uh, in addition to that 500th episode, which I, I, I really, um, uh, recommend everybody, uh, listen to that 500th episode of foreign policy focus with uh, Scott Horton talking about star Wars, Scott and I, we've talked, we're almost exactly the same age. So star Wars, you know, we saw it in the theaters, uh, empire was the first movie I saw in a theater, I think. And, um, it, it was really kind of a, uh, uh, it's great to hear him talk. He knows a lot more about it than I do, but uh, remembering what star Wars meant to uh, my generation as, a, as kids and kind of what has happened to it. I always interested in hearing Scott's take on that. 
what are, what are some other recent episodes that might be good uh, for someone who doesn't know foreign policy focus to dip into to get started on? Well, I'm really uh, excited about the episode that I have airing hopefully in a couple hours today uh, with Danny Scherzian, who I was just talking about. He has actually been at these protests over the past couple of weeks and talks about, you know, what the protests have been like as a veteran and compares that to what he was doing in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the you know, how the U.S., cops act and behave as compared to how U.S. soldiers have acted and behaved overseas. So I think that's a really interesting episode. Every Monday, I have Will Porter on the show. He is a uh, writer over at RT and a hardcore ANCAP. Uh, who so he writes up the news over over at RT and then every Monday he comes on my show to talk about like the most important stories he's written during the week the past couple of weeks we've really focused on coverage of the Minneapolis uh, you know the killing of George Floyd and then the subsequent protests and rioting uh, talking uh, you know just about like what we've seen like the critical stories the old man being pushed down police slashing tires police starting riots uh, you know, the, the different kinds of tear gas and police, police statutes being used, as well as making sure that, you know, we do talk about like, hey, you know, there's rioting and looting going on in this city. Also getting into the Minneapolis Police Department. This is what we talked about on Monday's show. Playing, or, yeah, they're going to disband it. Or that's at least the plan of the city council. They're going to get rid of the police in that town. And so we talk about that, you know, and, and try to find positive things. I know that these are commies that are playing to destroy the police, and they're probably have like three things worse in mind uh, that they might do. But I think there's a real opportunity for libertarians to come in right now and offer our solutions to this problem because we do have real solutions that will save lives quickly. Yeah. And the qualified immunity thing and ending the drug war, the two most obvious ones, uh, as well as uh, my dream of uh, one day there being no public sector unions. But I think we should start with the police just because uh, of all this stuff. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'm going to go back and listen to that. That sounds interesting. I really appreciate all the work you do. And uh, anytime you want to come on the show, you need to get something out there. Um, or any, if something happens in the news, uh, foreign policy wise, this big, you can, you can be sure that I'll be, uh, uh, hitting you up to come back on. So, uh, I, I, thanks for coming on today, Kyle. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. And there you have it. I'd like to thank Kyle Anzalone for being very generous with his time and wisdom and for all the hard work he puts in every day with foreign policy focused podcast and at the Libertarian Institute and antiwar.com. You should definitely check out what he does in each of those venues. I'd also like to thank Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. And finally, I'd like to thank everyone who gives to Mises Pack, everyone who shares, rates, and reviews Decentralized Revolution. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.